0: Hello everyone. Welcome to the Conscious Vibe Podcast.
1: Where we elevate intellect through conscious dialogue.
0: While exploring race, politics, business, and culture. I'm Dr. Daryl L. Jones. And I'm Charles D. Mitchell. Welcome to the Conscious Vibe. DJ.
1: Man, I have not seen you. It's been a minute.
0: It's it's been way too long.
1: <laughs> We've said that the last I, three. times. I know we said
0: won't. that the last three times. We don't yeah. have to do better. Really we, do better. We will. do better. I think maybe I'm I'll
1: take you over to your house after.
0: Yeah, this that, actually, Craig that might bar. that that actually might help. <laughs> that might help. Uh, welcome, welcome. Got my really really good friend Craig Randall DeMarco on the show today. Wow, wow. I get the I get the middle name. <laughs> the middle name. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anytime the middle name comes up. It's a heck of a freaking introduction. Somebody important. Uh, <laughs> or somebody show. in trouble. Welcome to the show. Glad to have Thank you. Thank you. you. Happy to be here. It's been a
1: while since I've
0: seen you. Yeah. It's been
2: a while. Yeah. Quite Too well.
0: long. So let me give a proper introduction. it. Okay. Craig DeMarco people, um, one of my closest friends, guys like a tremendous human being, uh, first and foremost, great entrepreneur, great um, entrepreneur. CEO, former CEO of Upper Projects, he relinquished that job a few years ago when he decided he didn't want to have a job when he uh, moved on to uh, sell part of his company. But Craig uh, and his wife, Chris, are some of my wife and I's closest friends. Um, Longtime entrepreneur, really successful. I think he's more than that in terms of just him and in in terms of his life and how he lives and has two great boys that um, my family's really close to, Chaz and AJ. And um, we're going to talk about Craig today. Welcome.
2: Happy to talk about myself anytime. (laughs) So i have to prep for that.
0: So, great. Walk us through, we always do this timeline of just kind of like early childhood all the way through sort of like take us to like the current moment in life in terms of how you got from, I know that you weren't born in Arizona, and just take us kind of like through that whole timeline in terms of getting to life
2: today. Yeah, great. So 1970, born in Waterbury, Connecticut to uh, Randall and Terry DeMarco. My dad was the oldest of five boys to a Sicilian father and a Norwegian mother. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather, was a Ranger in World War II and a Chevy dealer, so it was kind of a, a tough uh, tough household with five boys. Um, one of the takeaways that I've learned and my dad has shared with me, if you're not bleeding or in handcuffs, everything is fine. So uh, <laughs> you just got to go for it. But my dad, early on, wanted to get to the West Coast, so... Uh, they moved out to the Bay Area. We lived in San Jose, California, and Morgan Hill, California. My dad's always been an entrepreneur. He was really early in the tech space. The company that he was transferred with out to the Bay Area from Connecticut um, was a company out of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and he sold electronics component, electronic components to, to tech companies. And one of his earliest accounts was Apple Computer in the uh, early 70s when they were in a little strip mall. And my dad tells this great story of, going to call on Steve Jobs and that they couldn't meet his minimum orders. So my dad would order extra samples from his company and that and give it to them, uh, back in 1975 and 1976. That was awesome. My dad stayed in the tech business up there. He, uh, started some software companies. He developed a, uh, reservation system for the hotel industry really early on. And you know what happens when you're really early on. you when you're out in front you're taking some arrows. Um, he took some arrows and he, uh, but he kept fighting and fighting and I I learned a lot of my resilience and and never giving up spirit from him. Uh, back in 1981, he decided he was even uh, more efficient and more, uh, savvy to run his company out of Tempe, Arizona. So he moved us down here, myself and my younger brother. And that's how we ended up in, in the Valley. And I think I was in seventh grade at the time. Um, I like to share that my dad, um, ended up, um, being financially successful but it took a while as for many entrepreneurs some starts some some stops some starts again and while we were growing up we didn't have a lot of financial resources so me wanting to uh have a little side hustle that's how I got into the restaurant business I wanted a car my parents couldn't afford to provide that so I rode my bike down I got a job as a dishwasher and that was my glamorous start to my career
1: do wow. so any of your uh, siblings assume your father's business?
2: I'm the oldest, and I have one younger brother. And my father, at age 50, to give you some context, my parents have me. They're young, uh, 20 and 21. So at 50, my father sold out of his tech company and uh, retired. And he's been uh, uh, traveling around and an adventure seeker since right. then. Yeah. He's in his early 70s now. My mom and dad live here in the Valley. But they have a place in Montana and they spent a lot of time on the road, but he got, he, he retired at 50. Yeah. So,
0: so great. Let's talk about, um, getting into the restaurant industry. Um, and then that path that led to the creation of Postino and then all the other, uh, affiliated brands that came along after that.
2: Okay. So my glamorous start to the restaurant business that I started to tell you guys about I actually taught two classes at Brophy this week, Monday and Tuesday. Uh Profiles and vocation classes, and I love telling this story because the truth is, when I was in high school, why well, I was motivated in a car because I was interested in a girl. There was this brunette who I had a crush on, and I wanted to take her out, and I needed a car to do that. And um, and by the way, sorry to interrupt, but Brophy is a,
0: is a Jesuit high school here in uh, Phoenix, Arizona.
2: All male, correct? All male, yeah. all male uh, Jesuit high school. I have, I have a junior there. But I go in uh, once a semester and, and do two days on profiles of vocation, talk about our industry and entrepreneurial spirit and leadership. That's great. Um, so there was a cute gal. I wanted to take her out. I needed, I needed some, some, some game to do that. So I needed to get a car. I got a job washing dishes. I saved up $1,200. I spent 400, on a, on $400 of it on a 1982 Volkswagen Rabbit. I took the remaining $800 and bought an Alpine stereo. So if you do the math on that one, my stereo, uh, (laughs) way more valuable than the entire car that it was driving around in. And Alpine was
0: the way to go. And Alpine stereo. It is amazing what drives, like the the motivation around trying to get a girl, like the motivation around it. Once
2: you're in the car, you're in the car. Very blessed to be married for a long time to a fabulous wife, but (laughs) in that time of my life, I had had two focuses. (laughs) Girls and beer. I mean, that was kind of um, high school. But anyway, I got a job washing dishes. Ended up buying this car, ended up having a nice stereo, ended up taking the, the gal out on one date, could not successfully convert her to a second date, but the point of the story is I was resourceful and I figured it out. Good at being resourceful, maybe not so good at dating, but you know, I, I had plenty of time to hone my skills after that. So in the restaurant business and uh, got my start there, did a little jumping around, some retail, some restaurant, high school and college, had to pay for school. Ended up at ASU, uh, waited tables, bartended and managing a place um, on very close to campus, spent a lot of years doing that, really loved everything about the business, not only the um, service to the guest and the hospitality component, which I'm passionate about, but all the things that the restaurant business encompasses from real estate selection to branding to IT to hiring and training and mentoring and the full scope of the package. So not trying to leave critical moments of my life out. While I was at ASU, I met my wife, my current wife, um, Chris, and she is um, sophisticated and, and smart and beautiful. And I uh, had to play up to get to her game because she was not going to play down to be with me. So I really had to hustle and and, and learn some things and be more, a little more mature and sophisticated. We ended up getting engaged and I really wanted to follow my dad's footsteps and be entrepreneurial. So we decided and In uh the year 2000 to go into the restaurant business and open up our first place and we moved into a regentrifying neighborhood at 36th street and campbell we were walking our dogs we did boxer rescue and we stumbled across a by arizona standards an architecturally and historically relevant building it was a 1959 brick post office building that's that's old for a building in this town (laughs) (laughs) and um we went for it and opened up Postino and on April fourth, two thousand one. So that was kind of our glamorous start. There's a few other things that we had to do to get to make that happen, and if you'd like to so, learn so, about
0: those, yeah. But you know, one of the things, and this is what like, and this is one thing I really appreciate about you in terms of just the way the the innovative thinking in a time period well before like the idea of like wine and you know, some sort of like accompanying it, like, a I don't know, flatbread or salad or, or you know, anything relative to just sort of like having a glass of wine in a setting where you're just creating this new environment and culture. I mean, part of it is the experience. Right. And I feel like you were way ahead of your time in creating that moment for people. What what was that? What, what thought brought you and Chris to the point where you said, this is a really good idea. We think we should do something there.
2: So how we identified the idea and created the vision, we went to Italy for my 30th birthday with my parents, and we stayed north of Florence in a, a town called Lucca, and we really wanted to kind of explore the countryside, smaller towns, we've done the major the major cities, so we rented a little Alfa Romeo, and when I was renting the Alfa Romeo, I pictured this convertible red sports car. It would look more like a Nissan Sentra. I think you done for male since then, too. Right? <laughs> so we rented this neat farmhouse. Um, in fact, Chris Bianco, our famous culinary uh, celebrity chef in town, kind of pointed us towards this area. And we rented this farmhouse, and we drove around these small towns. And every day when we were cruising around, we'd find a little wine bar or cafe to sit in, and wine was not pretentious. It was casual, and we were wearing flip-flops and T-shirts and shorts, and the wine quality was great. And we had this experience with my wife, with my parents, and we came back from that trip and we were searching for that here and it really didn't exist. We had gotten old enough where we didn't want to go to the bars and there really wasn't to go to a restaurant. It was kind of expensive and more fancy. There was no casual place to have that experience. And that was the spark that lit our idea to do Postino. And it was really about a hang. Where can you come with your friends without distractions, have a quality, inexpensive glass of wine without having to get all fancy and all dressed up. No one's going to look down their nose at you if you don't know anything about wine. And an experience to make those deep connections. And that was our whole mission. And that's why uh, we went after opening Postino. We weren't chefs. We weren't culinary experts. And we put a menu together that was shareable and easy to execute and quick. And it kind of caught on with our neighborhood.
0: Yeah, what I love about it is that you've now... Made wine in reach of everyone, right? So, you know, you to your point, you don't have to be sophisticated and know a ton about wine. And literally, you can show up for twenty bucks and have a, a bottle of wine and a bruschetta board, and you know, you've got a nice little meal in front of you. I, I think that's amazing in terms of just thinking around how to bring people together in a way where they can feel like this is a, a affordable way to enjoy time together and spend uh, spend that time with uh, with family and friends.
2: Well, when I talk about the brand, I always think about the, the, what are we really selling at Postino. To me, the number one thing is the experience. And all of the things we had to do through design, through training, through curating the playlist, the lighting, the artwork. That's all part of the package that you get to experience. And then we happen to have really inspired wine and really tasty food. So, But number one is the experience. When people come in, we want them to feel something. We want to raise their vibration. And that's that's our big mission is to take people when they're vibrating at one frequency, when they show up, and they leave vibrating at a higher frequency. So, you know, one of the things about Pustino to me personally is
1: it feels organic and it feels local. What is it? What fundamental shifts did you have to make from, hey, I'm opening a restaurant to we're actually a part of the community and we inspire the community? What was required in your psychological shift? From just being a a restaurant to something that's really valued in the community and inspires the people that work for you.
2: So in the beginning, I like to act like I had this strategic plan back then, but when we opened, we had very little capital. In fact, it was one of those great bootstrap stories and we were kind of opened up in, in debt and we didn't have really any money to spend on marketing. So the only way to really drive business was grassroots and organic in the neighborhood which was standing at the front door and thanking every single person who came in, who showed up, making a deep connection with them. I talking about in, in conversion rates. Every first timer needs to be a regular. So we invested a crazy amount of time meeting every, every person that came in. We also went out into the immediate community, tried to meet our neighbors, other small businesses because we didn't have a, a marketing budget to spend. It was kind of my wife and I knocking on doors and meeting everyone we could. We did that for a year or so, and now we have a new concept. We opened about 30 days ago in Gilbert. I find myself, even with more capital now and more experience and the ability to have a marketing plan, that's invaluable to stand at the front door and meet your guests, meet your customers, get to know them, show sincere, authentic, genuine appreciation that they made the choice to come visit you, and again, try to convert them to a regular. And on top of that, one extra layer, create a brand ambassador so when they leave they're doing that work for you and telling other people about the experience. I'll share one experience with you at Postino Arcadia early on that I shared with some seniors at Brofeed yesterday and I get choked up talking about it but when we opened and we were operating, Chris and I were in the store every day a lady came in and we were happy she was there, we were happy she was a customer and she sat in the corner and I went over, we were chatting with her genuinely, authentically interested and grateful that she was there. She ended up showing up for a while, became kind of a regular, and we would we knew her first name and we'd appreciate her when she came in. And then she stopped coming in. And we never really saw her again for a long time. I was at a health club down the street called The Village at 44th Street in Camelback in our neighborhood one day. About, this is about 10 years after I hadn't seen her. And she had a, a son with her, named Xavier. Uh, he was 11 or 12 years old. And she pulled me aside in the gym and she said, "Listen, When I was coming to Postino, it was right after I had my son and I had horrible, horrible postpartum depression. And I was actually thinking about taking my own life. And I showed up and you guys were so nice to me and showed me so much care and love and talked to me when I was in there. You guys really helped me through that dark time and I've never gotten to share that with you, sorry. And I'm in the village with her bawling, tears streaming down my cheeks, hugging her, standing next to her son and she shared that story. Now, at the time, we didn't know what she was going through, but we cared so much about the community and our guests making those connections. The byproduct was she got something from that. We raised her vibration. That's so beautiful. And it's such a powerful wow. story for me. So, beautiful. so when I'm meeting guests at our new concept or customers, I don't know what their day is like. I don't know what they're dealing with. I don't know what their family situation is, but I never assume... Anything, and I try to treat every single person. I try to instill this in our team with that level of care and authentic connection. Again, I'm getting a little choked up, but that's really what we're selling. That's why it's so powerful. And yeah, you asked me if I think we're a part of the community, number one. Making money, awesome. Love doing it, but it's not the main reason we do what we do. It's to have those experiences for our guests and become a part of the neighborhood.
0: I think anytime you're dealing with uh, the public in in, in business, um, whether it's you know in, in, in your line of work in the restaurant hospitality industry, or the you know the work that you do, DJ uh, in consulting from time to time, and also in the re- recruiting work that we do, it becomes personal at some point, right? And and you never know what people are going through um, when they walk through those doors or when you engage with them. So I think it really makes it makes a lot of sense that if if you're looking at it from a standpoint of putting that person in front of you as like the number one priority in that moment um, for the experience and for the opportunity to really create something of more value to them than just whatever they're paying for, um, I think that just speaks volumes in terms of how you think about the work that you do and how much you care about the work and care about the people. Super important.
1: So, so, you know, once you achieve so many of the things that you've achieved you know I just think about what would motivate somebody like Craig at this point point. and then I think about your kids ideally what do you want for your kids I mean you know I think about them and I think they have parents who are you know largely successful icons in the community nationally And I'm sure there's probably some unspoken pressure that they feel. I would just imagine. What is it you want for them when you think about their lives and everything you've achieved?
2: It's been a topic in our household a lot recently. My oldest son is the same age as Charles' oldest daughter. They're juniors in high school and they're starting their college tours and, you know, what kind of people they're going to be. But at the end of the day, we want kids that are humble Strong work ethic, not entitled. And the one of the reasons we started this new concept air guitar for me personally was both of our boys never saw Chris and I when we were starting out. Exactly. And we were worried about covering payroll. Right. And we had to choose which bill to pay this week and talking to vendors and, and working our tails off and bell to bell and being exhausted. And you know, they they only know us after we had some level of success. And I wanted them to see an entrepreneurial endeavor from the start even though we have a little more capital now i'm trying to show them what it takes to what the beauty is in having nothing and then creating something and give them the ability to believe they can do that also now i shared with you my dad was entrepreneurial and he ended up doing okay later in life but in the beginning there's a lot of struggles i learned a lot from that i learned underdog spirit and hustle and you know resourcefulness and and, again, also some faith that things are going to work out if you have a solid foundation. My mom and dad are married. You know, I had a, a young, younger brother. So all of those kind of core value things. And, again, I'm still kind of trying to align myself at this stage of my life. What are my true core values? I think they've always been solid, but I'm shifting them and being even more selective now on how I spend my time and my energy and the things I do, what the impact's going to be. Because I do realize I can have a big impact. Yeah. Um,
0: you know, I definitely want to talk more about air guitar, but I want to go back to um, transition uh, from the sense of I mentioned earlier that you know former CEO. You had an opportunity a number of years ago, I like think four years ago, almost right. It's it
2: It'll be four, four years, four years next, next month. Next month, month? Yeah. November, November of um,
0: seventeen, where you mm-hmm. sold a majority stake of Upper Projects and uh, to a private equity organization. I think there's a great. Great, great relationship there that is helping you build and grow that brand. Um, talk about the transition from being a, a founder, selling your company, and then transitioning to now you're, you know, you're, you're still a part of your organization, but you have a different role now. And how that has helped you, one, to sort of want what it's done for you and your family uh, not necessarily financially what it's done, but what it's done for you in terms of your ability to sort of do things a little differently now and then take on new challenges, obviously, like air, air guitar. But for you as a as a one leader and two as, um, you know, someone who takes a lot of pride in your work and getting up every day and running Pack Mountain and working really hard. How, what,
2: how's that transition been for you as, as just a person on, on a human level? So great. Before I answer that directly, I want to go back a little more in time to when we opened Postino and we decided we had something that could scale and grow. Um, I think one of my biggest superpowers is realizing my own limitations and identifying talented people to surround myself with. And I, I think I, I did, and my wife and I did a really great job at attracting talent and then giving them the ability to really shine and We've had some superstars come through our, our business one who is our current CEO, and I know she's been on this podcast before, Lauren Bailey yep. uh, joined us early in the Postino um, story. and she has been you know such a, an epic piece of our of our adventure. And, and, and having partners like that that we share core values, we share vision, we share you know drive and, and, and our, our strategic plan to get to the ability to have a sale event, with a really aligned private equity group so we can grow this brand regionally and nationally has been, I mean, unbelievable. The amount I've, I've been exposed to and I, can, I learned going through that. Personally, on my transition, when we decided we needed to grow, we needed more capital, and, and we've we're, Laura and I, as far as the company goes, as far as we've been, we didn't have anyone on our team that had gone further yet. So we know we need to add some of those key positions if we're really going to do this. Um, we decided to take it out and market it, and we uh, we aligned with a great private equity company, Brentwood. We uh, we closed a deal with them in November of 2017, and we started to grow. Personally, that transition looked looked pretty dark in the beginning. Um, going through it, I was insecure. I've never first time doing a private equity deal. Um, my skill set is not the financial part of it, and these guys are all really skilled at that. So I had uh, you know, some insecurity around it. I went out to an organization that Charles and I are in called YPO, and I, I talked to as many people who had been through private equity deals or, or transitioning out of companies they founded, and I spoke to them. And one of the messages I got that I heard consistently was, you're going to feel a deep, dark hole for a while, Don't feel the need to run out. You're going to want to run out and fill that hole with something quickly. Try to live in that space for a while. Don't rush out and just do something to get to to substitute for that hole or, or to fill that hole, which I think was very valuable feedback. But a year or two, I felt disconnected away from the energy, away from the last 18 years that I spent 100% one hundred percent confidence in Lauren and the team we built their ability to to take it to the next level really confident in our private equity partners but personally from being in the stores every day meeting the guests knowing knowing the team members and having you know relationships with them to being kind of on the outside because I didn't have a direct role I was you know more of a board member and, and support but not doing in the work directly and out of operations it was a uh, it was uh I had some depressed moments mm. and, you know, but they were excited moments because for the next chapter, but also missing. And I tell Lauren all the time and I'm, you know, I miss working one one on one with her almost every day. You know, we had so much fun and even through the toughest of tough times when her and I couldn't stand being around each other. And then my wife and Lauren had that same relationship too. It was just, again, the cycle When we were growing the company, there was a lot of little wins every day. You know, something would happen, you'd solve it, pat on the back, you'd check in the win category. And I like those. It's adrenaline, it's, you know, you're getting that rush. All of a sudden, I didn't have that ability to to feel productive or successful on a daily basis. And I, I, I tried to, you know, work out more and, you know, do things to better myself, but I had a little bit of a hole for about two years. And once I got through that and got comfortable and, was halfway through that transition. Then we started working on air guitar. So we wanted to know we wanted to do another creative pursuit, but I had to get through that phase first. I think if I would have tried to rush in and do air guitar immediately, it wouldn't have turned out like it did because I had to get clarity on where I was in my life and what was really important to me. So can you
1: tell us a little more about air guitar?
2: Mm. So it is a 5,300-square-foot, super-tricked-out convenience store. And how air guitar happened... After we sold um, our stake to the private equity company, we have some friends and neighbors who are in the convenience store and gas business. They're the largest Chevron franchisee in Arizona. They have 21 stores operating under the Four Sons brand. They're a 60-year-old company, and one of my friends has been operating it for over 20 years. And I was really intrigued by the model because it's different than the restaurant model. Our model is very labor-intensive and low margin. The convenience store model inside the four walls Is high margin and very low labor. It doesn't take a lot of people to run it. Our friends were very intrigued with the restaurant business because it's about design and hospitality and touch points and guest connection, things that a typical convenience store doesn't do. So really, we took what I've done and my wife has done in our company and what they've done, and we made it collide. And the wreckage that came out of that collision is called Air Guitar. It's 7,500 items. 60% of them are kind of grocery themed. 40% of them are convenience store themed. You can get a monster energy drink. You can get a bag of chips, but you can also get a healthy sandwich. You can get gourmet almond butter. It's kind of a whole foods meets a QT and had a baby, but we also added a hospitality environment. We have two large patios. We have a liquor license where you can open up one of the 180 bottles of wine that we sell and consume on premise. Um, we designed an amazing building that has lots of natural light and an amazing sound system. So it's it's curated more like a restaurant, but it's got products like a retail grocery or convenience store. You know what I loved when I went out there?
0: Um, one is just the um, first of all is the the energy of the place. Like I think that the design is, is just it's a beautiful design. It's very inviting, very warm. Um, and, and it was it was a lot of there was a lot of buzz inside of. Uh, of the space and, and really um, just captured your attention when you walked in. But the other thing I think is just, I think it's maybe a little bit about the postino playbook, but I love, you know, I talked about this when we were there, you know, you have the the wine rack where you have like the, it's like the $15 bottle section. I think it was a 25 and then the 40.
2: Nice memory.
0: And so what, what I love about that is, you know, and Craig and I had this conversation when, when I was out there, you know, People typically, and I know I do this, you have an idea of what you want to spend on a bottle of wine when you walk in, right? You know, unless there's just something that you really, really want. You want this bottle and it just costs what it what it costs. But typically you go in and you, you, you may see a bottle of wine and you may balk at something that's 75 bucks when you're only willing to spend 30, right? And so it just gives you an opportunity to go in and say, oh yeah, $15 bottle of wine. Perfect, I'm in. And so I think that helps people come in and not have to figure out, okay, where do I want to be on this whole spectrum? I can go to this area where I know I'm comfortable spending you know, a certain amount on this bottle of wine and then go from there. I think that's genius in terms of how you just sort of
2: lay that out for people to help them with that choice. So we've got of the 180 wines, we have 90 red and 90 white broken into those three price categories, 15, 25, and 40, both for red and white. So there's 30 in each category. <clears throat> and different from a typical convenience store, we designed an architecturally spectacular building. So when you come into this building and you see this 15, 25 or $40 area, you already have confidence in the selection. And after years of being in the business, and I still do this, when I go out with my wife or I'm going to buy a bottle of wine, I go, I start with price point. I know kind of how much I want to spend. Then I kind of go to varietal, but I also want something that is fun packaging. So when we were working on selecting these wines, we wanted fun labels and great stories behind the wines, you know, and we kind of accomplish that and it's really easy but you have to have confidence in the environment to make that choice without someone there to hand sell it to you.
1: So can I ask if you guys go through this kind of mental process when you're buying a bottle of wine? Let's say you're going to a dinner party and you're going to bring wine. Does the value you put on the Folks, you're going to visit parallel to the amount you're willing to
2: spend. Absolutely. I, so, when you buy a $15, <laughs> all, I showed up at his <laughs> house. I showed up at Charles's house with a $15. It's
1: more than that. It's to okay? zero on the end of that <laughs> okay. 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 I just wanted to make sure I wasn't up. Uh, no, I, no, but, no,
2: for sure. I mean, I you mean, go through I mean, it subconsciously, right? Or no, no question. For sure. And listen, there's spectacular wine in the world yeah. you can spend a lot of money on. But back to why we started Postino, we want to make it accessible Absolutely. and easy for people. And if Charles comes in, he can still find something great. Even though he has a very deep knowledge and a great palate for wine, he can still find a 15 25 or 40 bottle that he's going to enjoy. I've never
1: known Charles to buy a $15 bottle of wine. But
2: no, that's not true. Well, that is
0: not true. Okay. That is not true. Okay. I, when I, When I live in Oregon... I routinely bought fifteen dollar bottles
2: of wine. Well you could yeah, there, right? Exactly right? You could. Exactly right. Exactly.
0: Hands down. Yeah. You can get a great Pinot for
2: $14.99. But if you at see, a gas you look, station. If you look at the, the demographic where Air Guitar is, we're in Gilbert, you know, it's one of the fastest growing municipalities in the That's country. Right. It's the second safest municipality in the country by crime rates. It's really great for young families. And most of our customers that are coming in are in their 30s with kids. And that's what they're shopping. That's what they have. They have disposable income, but they're not spending two hundred dollars on a bottle of wine. They're spending fifteen, twenty-five, or forty, and they're and they're they're exploring getting into wine. And so. you can definitely
1: adjust your palate to a fifteen-dollar oh. bottle of wine quickly. Oh, yeah. for sure, absolutely.
2: The crazy thing is, there's there's really amazing wine in that price absolutely point from all right. over the world now. Yeah. In terms,
0: of, and let's talk about location for a second. Like your location, you're right off the uh, the sixty freeway, right? The Two o two. Sorry, two o two. But then there's a there's a, a a luxury apartment complex being built right behind you. Is that? Is that is it
2: apartments or condos? Uh, they're apartments. Yeah. Here yeah, we have 330 plus apartments going in behind us. Uh, three three stories on the base of the project. It's mixed use. There's ten restaurants right. going in. Really high quality restaurants. It's gonna be it's gonna be a uh, definitely uh, be some discovery, but it's a destination, right? And uh, Gilbert's a really amazing demographic, and the whole East Valley is right now. And with with this flood of people that are moving to Arizona from the Pacific Northwest and from California, you know, Colorado, Texas, and Arizona are absorbing lots of those those people, and the Southeast Valley of Arizona is getting the bulk of them. So it's growing like like mad out there. They're building apartments and condos and homes everywhere.
1: So I did a little digging. Just in terms of some of your personal interests in, in and growing up. you had to take a stab from a musical perspective, what do you think one of his favorite groups were when he was growing up?
0: Beastie Boys. Well, you, you already
2: knew, I guess. <laughs> kind of throwing softballs there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty big pretty big Beastie so Boys fan. <laughs> Listen, License uh, deal yeah. came <laughs> out in 1986.
1: <laughs> so I was going to ask your three favorite Beastie Boys song, so I imagine License to Ill is your favorite
2: album or CD. Oh, that's okay. Now, because I'm a raving fan, License to Ill was the, my first experience with them. Their first album, High School. I saw yeah. them open up for Madonna yeah, on crazy. the Like a Virgin tour. Yeah. I saw them with Run DMC, and they were I fresh mean, and new. You're I mean, talking yeah.
1: like never seen anything like this.
2: I mean, Run DMC and Fishbone and Beastie Boys—that's yeah. a heck of a ticket, right? I saw them in Celebrity Fishbone, Theater. Don't know about Fishbone. Uh, I'm a huge Fishbone Out of fan Detroit, too. Right? I think they're actually angelo the lead singer yeah. yeah i'm a huge fishbone fan too but got into the beastie boys license still was my introduction so i, I love that because it was part of my high school experience but when they came out with paul's boutique that kind of changed my that's world true.
1: yeah and if yeah. you guys have
2: ever you know dug into paul's boutique at the time and it still might be it's got more samples than any album that's ever been produced I know that. It's, it's a really remarkable album miles davis actually said it was one of his fav- favorite albums of all time and if you it's like exploration it was critically a failure for the beastie boys it didn't commercially do well but it's a beautiful album and then they went into check your head and "Ill community i'm sorry ill communication and they start playing their instruments so they've got this it's a really interesting story and on apple tv you can watch the beastie boys documentary that came out this year so yes i'm a a pretty big fan was it Rubin that did most of this stuff early on he did, and they, they, were part, they were part of Def Jam with Russell Simmons right. and Rick Rubin. They, Rick produced the first album, and then they had a little bit of falling out with Russell. Right. But uh, you know Russell was managing Run DMC yeah. at the time, and that's how they ended up on that tour. But really, and also, in the documentary, Russell talks about when he got a call from Madonna's manager saying they, they wanted Run DMC to open for Madonna, and Run DMC was already booked. So he goes, I got this other group called the Beastie Boys. And they went on stage. They got booed off at the majority of the shows because, you know, it was a 12-year-old girl. That was the Madonna demographic. They didn't <laughs> want to see the Beastie Boys. But it kind of pole-bolted them to the next level. So, so there a, you go. I head
0: start there. I, you know, I, full disclosure, for his 50th birthday, um, gave him a gift that was a, it was a, a framed, signed album cover from Beastie Boys. Oh, man, that's awesome. With uh, The Check with, Your Head album. Check Your Head album. It was beautiful. Um, it was fun. Did, shared that gift with, um, billion cat deck. Uh, okay. Yeah, and yeah. we're going to have Billy on probably next month. Absolutely. But uh, Yeah, that's th- this is a conversation around music cuz I know music is a big part of his life as well that we should probably dig into. You know, one of the one of the games we like to play a lot of times, particularly over in California is this whole sort of like it's almost like a name name that song
2: yeah. where you play like yeah. the first few bars oh, um, and try to figure out he, he's like the like the world champion of that that uh-huh. game. We sit on okay. we sit on Charles's patio with a bottle of wine. I don't know if it's a fifteen dollar bottle of wine, <laughs> but a bottle of wine. We
0: know it's
2: not. <laughs> <laughs> we listen to music. We if we can guess the song for anyone else. And we go. We actually expanded, and it goes into all kinds of genres now: R yeah. and B, blues, and you know we, we don't hip-hop. do country much, but yeah. a lot of a lot of eighties and nineties hip hop. So,
1: yeah, the Beastie Boys were. I mean, they were transformational. Back then, it was uh, good music. So now as, as you sit in, you know, you think about the future, obviously there's air guitar. What other things are on your mind about what you want to accomplish and involve yourself in?
2: Yeah. You know, um, spending time with my favorite people as yeah. much as I can. And you know, uh, one of the things that my wife and I talk about earlier in our career and we we're trying to build our business and trying to network and we were kind of a, a mile wide and an inch deep with our relationships. We knew a lot of people but didn't have really close relationships. That's been a big pivot for us over the past five to ten years, and now it's even more important. We've kind of uh, identified the people around us that lift us up and bring us great energy and make those commitments to those relationships, spend way more energy building those. So try to be a mile deep and an inch wide now. And then still love the entrepreneurial spirit. You know, where air guitar is, it was a piece of raw dirt. Two years ago. There was nothing there. It was actually farmland. It was never even developed. So we created something from nothing, and there's a thrill in that, and other people get to experience it. I can't imagine not doing entrepreneurial things um, to learn and grow. Even though, you know, the last month has been super challenging. There's a couple moments that I was you know, curled up in that fetal position going, <laughs> you know, why do we use and how are we going to get through this? But then, you know, I've I been there before, right? And yeah. there exactly. before, no, yeah. this, this, this too shall pass. Exactly. But, uh, you know, I don't think you have growth spurts without going through those moments and not looking for the easy path.
1: Yeah. Well, you, you talked about this editing process, Craig, too, of just kind of people, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And there's the, the side of, Hey, do I, these are the folks I want to spend more time with a quality perspective. The tougher part sometimes is those folks that don't make that cut, right? And having to manage that process of I'm not gonna spend as much time here anymore. Is that a tough process? Is that a literal process? You have those conversations? How does that
2: flow for you? Yeah, it's tough. You know, saying saying no is tough. And yep. Charles will vouch for me, I'm not a I am not I do not say no much. <laughs> a lot of times it gets me in trouble to say yes to everything, and then I can't do it all. And yeah. I ended up or not doing it to my full potential. So I'm trying to curate that in my life, but yeah, identifying again, the people that bring you the most joy, the most energy you share core values with, absolutely, you know, that you can give something to and get something from on a, on a very authentic and genuine level. And we've identified those people in our life and curated that list. And yeah, I don't spend as much time with some people that I used to be close with, whether they didn't grow as much or, but at the end of the day, you've got limited amount of time and I want to get the most out of this and be around people that make me feel
1: better. And you owe that gift to yourself, right? I mean, you've worked hard, and you want to continue to give to other folks who deserve it. Quite honestly, and uh, that's part of that process too. So I think that's awesome.
0: Yeah, DJ and I talk about this a lot. I mean, we're 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 on the other side of this whole thing. We think, for the most part, um, and time is the key piece to that equation, and. You want to make sure that when you make decisions about who you spend time with and who you're around that, you know, those things are going to lift you up as opposed to pull you down mm-hmm. or, or, or even, you know, I often think about it in the terms of, you know, where you want your energy to go. Right. And, and how much do you want to use your energy to you know? I think of in terms sometimes about do I want to pull people along because that takes a lot of work. Right. When you're trying to pull people along in life and you you're trying to get them to like see things and understand things. And I'm in a place where I don't know if I want to do that very much. Right. I don't want to pull people along. And I had to make I've had to make some decisions over the last several months about people I want to be around where I don't want to have to do that. I want you to be like we don't have to be in the same place. But at least we can be in a place where we can have a real conversation about things, about life, about where we're headed and about things that are important to us and the values and the values and not feel like, wow, did I just hear that? Like that is so far away from, you know, any conversation that to me is rational and makes sense. Right. And so I just kind of think that's kind of where I am. And I think, you know, you get to that place in life where, you know, those people that you can share and explore conversations with that know sometimes can be challenging or difficult at least you can all see each other in a way where we, there's you know there's a love and respect there that we can kind of take that to the next level and continue the conversation
2: were you an athlete growing up i wasn't told about sophomore year of high school Played baseball but you're looking at me now at a whopping 140 what? i've never been over 145 in my life are you serious i've never i graduated high school 135 and i'm at 140 today so I've been this body type since a uh, sophomore in high school. And wow. unfortunately, that didn't lead to me having success in most of the high school sports because I didn't have size or strength. So, But I am an athlete. I've done triathlon for years. I'm, I'm Per my peer group, I'm, He's an I'm really fit. I was going to say, you really look like you could take somebody. He's an athlete. I've yeah. hiked Camelback Mountain over 4,000 exactly. times. I, I don't miss many days. Okay, well,
1: come on now. That's, that's many, not, many
2: days yeah. in the pool. But competitive athlete on, uh, with team sports. You know, kind of got junior and senior year in high school, I couldn't I couldn't compete, uh, but then I kind of found individual sports and things I could challenge myself with. But yeah, lifelong athlete. This is who introduced I've been trying me. to buy the lifelongathlete.com um, domain, and the gentleman who owns it will sell it to me.
0: Oh, is so that right? I've okay. offered him a ridiculous amount oh, of money because I want to
2: own lifelongathlete.com. Oh, I love it! I so, love that. Yeah. this
0: is introduced me to triathlons, right? And so, um, that whole trek and trying to continue to train and develop to try to successfully uh, compete in those things. It's, it's a it's a journey. It's fun. Um, enjoying it. Yeah, we, we've talked about baseball before. What position did you play?
2: Shortstop, yeah.
1: Yeah, so we all three played growing up, and it was that and football were most critical for me.
0: Mm-hmm. You actually played in college. Baseball, right? yep. I walked, I hadn't played since I was 13 and walked on as a freshman in college. As and pitched. A, as, right? as, a, as a pitcher. Yeah. Um, but basketball was my sport.
1: Yeah, but baseball, I, I think that as a – I hate to see that subside as it relates to kids growing up. Mm-hmm. Ultimate team sport, um, you think you can kind of lag. That's when that fly comes to the top fly comes right at your head, whatever it is. And I wish more kids were involved in, in baseball. I mean, it was really critical for me growing up.
0: Dude. Well, one I of the things I've enjoyed them. the last couple of years or so is watching his son, A.J., play baseball.
1: Oh, so you're some plays. Yeah, and yeah. both his
0: both his boys have played competitive sports oh, see, in great. baseball and basketball, and have an opportunity. To, I think
2: Chaz is playing lacrosse now. He's playing lacrosse. So as a family, we kind of decided until the kids are twelve or thirteen, they should play all all four sports or three or four sports a year, and be exposed to everything. And so my youngest is on a club baseball team right now, a club basketball club. team. That's great. Man. Yeah. And so again, we're a very athletic family, and there's a, there's a whole nother conversation we can have on, on raising kids right now. And and, and sports is a part of that, those life lessons. It's very important to us as a family. My wife is a competitive volleyball player. And you know, I, I, my kids can't play enough sports right now. It's really important to us, especially to get them off their devices and learn all those things and be active. Now, are they blessed with your physique and size? And- <clears throat> so my oldest son is blessed with my speed and coordination. He's He had a lot of success doing that and why he gravitated, I think, towards lacrosse. My youngest son, very interesting, has, has a whole – different iq sports iq the way he sees the games he's 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 a good little athlete but he's got way more court awareness way more field awareness he can kind of almost lean into the future and see what's happening he had a a club basketball game this weekend and he was he was you know bringing the ball up and he was he saw the thing he was telling his and he's 11 years old he was directing traffic it was really fun to see him Uh and understand what was happening on the court. So and that's hard to teach. It's hard to teach. Absolutely that. It really that, is hard that to teach. Yeah. It's hard you to teach. So some good coaching. And he actually has, you know, a little more uh, intellectual connection to, to the game. So,
1: so we're sort of winding down Craig and you're not that we're the most exciting individuals in the world, but do you have any questions of us?
2: Does anything strike you as curious about us or what's the craziest thing anyone's ever said during this podcast? Is there any response you got that you didn't expect? Like it's like whoa or curveball or hmm. Hmm, that's a really good question.
1: Like Thirty
2: four in now, and you think about
0: that. Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I've heard some things on the podcast that I for sure didn't expect to hear. I'm just trying to think about what would be the the craziest of those <laughs> right. responses.
1: You know, we we take pride in the fact that we've never edited one. Right. So everything you've seen has, has happened. You haven't missed anything, so to speak.
2: Um, All right, let me, let me ask this then. After 34, right, 34, what are some of the gems you've learned, some of the wisdom you've gained by being on the other side of the table?
1: As crazy as this sounds, never underestimate people. Never right. overestimate people. Right. Just let them be. Just ask the questions, allow them to answer. Yeah. Don't don't have high expectations of what this exchange is going to bring. Just allow it to to flow.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think one of the things that's been unique about the conversations is that everyone has something very different that they bring to the discussion. Mm-hmm. And for either from their perspective in life, how they were raised, where they grew up, the work that they do, um, sort of like the mentality that they have. Um, A lot of times think of uh, like I I think of one person that, you know, Gary Linhart, who, you know, the conversation he brought to the to the table was around being this always being this sort of like most improved player. From like early childhood playing in sports, right? We talk a lot about sports and then even to where he is in in his professional career in life, like always being like not the, the best coming out of the gate. But improving along the way and then sort of showing his worth, uh, you know, sort of like at the end of the season or as he sort of matriculates and grows in this in in the work that he does. I always thought that, you know, when you hear those things from people and you look at them from the outside and go, wow, they're just great. They're successful. And they you know it's it's, it's easy for them. It's not always easy. You know, there's a there's a there's a track that we all have to follow to get where we go. And um, sometimes for us, for others, it's just, um, you know, the work underneath, you know, like you know, that duck that's like paddling and you don't know, ever see the feet? It's a lot harder than you think.
1: You know, and it's a good question, Greg. I think one of the things I continue to be most inspired by is the willingness of, you know, leaders like you to communicate their vulnerabilities. And and that's not always easy, especially in the moment when you have to lead people at the same time. But and they can't necessarily see that anguish that, that you go through. But you get to a point and realize communicating that is just as important as it is your successes. So people can understand, you know, that's part of the journey. So I think, I think one of the things I'm happy about is that we've created an environment where people seem like they're willing to do that. And, you know, I don't know what that is yet, um, but, but I'm happy to see that happen. Whether it's you, uh, Craig in the situation, or uh, Gary in the situation you talked about, Reg. Mm-hmm. Just people who've done amazing things that are willing to talk about the dark side sometimes mm-hmm. uh i think that's special because it's not easy to do when you have this persona that people expect of you so i continue to be inspired by that and, and allowing that to open up here on the show
0: i think that makes it fun i mean I think it makes mm-hmm. it fun for dj and i and uh you know we do learn something every single time we have someone on we learn something uh, not only about that person who's sitting in the chair, um, but also about how, you know, we can you know be better in this work and the conversations we have. You're a golfer? Oh, not
2: a golfer. Wait. Oh, wait. Huh? Like, not I, 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 yes, I golf. I but sometimes I my... There. I, yeah, I knew that's where that golf. was going. Well, I'm good, good through about gone. six holes. And then uh, that's my attention span starts to... Starts to drift. <laughs> you get okay. More of your
1: vulnerabilities. There was a six-hole <laughs> golf course I <laughs> have to
2: play it every day. The seventh hole, I'm going to uh, especially in this heat,
0: sometimes.
2: Great. But, all right, we will we'll stay
0: focused, Charles. Uh, well, Craig, you know, we could talk all day long, and you know, we know we have a lot of conversations ahead. So, um, first of all, thank you for being on the
2: show. Very um, much. Good been to a see you. Pleasure. Long Happy time coming. to be here. raise my energy. Day's going to be better now. Uh, no doubt about that. And uh, thank you
0: for joining us on The Conscious Vibe.
1: Thank you for joining us.
0: And check us out on TCVPodcast.com.